Welcome to Movie Music, a podcast where we explore the world of film and what film reveals about our world. I'm Quentin. So today, I am going to talk about one of my all-time favorite movies, The Matrix. And uh, I'm very excited to talk about this one because uh, more than almost any other popular film I can think of, there's so many things to chew on here, both from just a filmmaking standpoint to a philosophical one and even to the science behind it. And I'm also excited to talk about this because I'm bringing on a good friend of mine, Thomas, who is a guy who knows all three pretty darn well. How's it going, Thomas? <laughs> Thanks for having me, Quentin. It's going pretty well. I'm also excited to be talking about this movie that so well captures social, philosophical, and scientific ideas all in one. Yeah. So before we actually launch into it, um, we are, as, I, as we're recording this right now, it is, uh, it's November and we've had COVID since March. Uh, mm. Have you, uh, with all the extra time indoors, have you had an opportunity to see or binge anything new and interesting that has stuck out to you? Huh. Um, I mean, I've, I've certainly binged a number of things uh, in, in, in the shelter in place happening in the Bay Area. Uh, the most recent thing I've been binging has been Bob's Burgers. Oh, yeah. It's uh, it, you know, the thing I find about binging is that it's you kind of turn off your critical brain, um, for a little while. Yeah. Um, so it's a little hard to tell like how good it really is, but the fact that I uh, I I find that it's it's very, uh, it's full of a lot of heart. Yeah, and it's funny. It actually does make me laugh out loud, even when I'm alone. Um, and I think the thing that impresses me most is that if you look at um, people's favorite episodes, like listicles online, they don't agree. Like even top thirty, top forty lists have <laughs> like you know, there's not a lot of overlap between them. So there's a lot of really good quality episodes out there that resonate with different people. Interesting. That's a good point, because I can definitely think of something like The Simpsons or It's Always Sunny, where a lot of people will, when they do their top lists, the top 20 often have some pretty heavy overlap, and I haven't really considered that. Yeah, yeah. Even top 20, I don't see much overlap, so it's pretty cool. I am not as caught up on that one. I've seen the first few seasons, definitely binged a good amount of that as well. Uh, I myself, I discovered this show I really like. Uh, it's an HBO show called High Maintenance, and pretty much the only premise is that it's an ensemble series. It's a comedy drama, I guess, or dramedy, as some would call it. And in a given episode, it will usually follow like two or three characters or groups of people uh, through their daily lives. And the only thing they have in common is that they all have the same drug dealer who appears in every episode, who's just like this really chill guy who, you know, bikes his way across Brooklyn. And sometimes it's really funny and charming. Other times it's heartbreaking. But what I appreciate about it is that it really captures all walks of life, just all people of, you know, race creeds. Uh, and it's just really, really interesting and unexpected. And so it was one of those where it's like, you could tell this is like a critical, uh, like critically well-made, but it's also just like, it's really engrossing and it's really funny at times too. Can I, can I ask you a question about it? Please do. <laughs> um, whenever, whenever shows any sort of media tries to encapsulate all walks of life i always get a little worried that they they tend to try to be really preachy about it um so i'm curious how you think or how preachy you think this this uh show is great question um that probably would be in the eyes of the beholder but mm -hmm. what i can say is that it's it it reams of authenticity to me because it seems like you know it, it, if one episode is is about uh like mostly from the perspective of a dog for example a dog really really likes you can tell the way that it's framed that it really really likes the dog walker but isn't especially fond of its owner and then hmm. another one will be uh, a guy is has left the fringe Hasidic Jewish community and just wants to go clubbing and picking up girls. Uh, it is deeply human, even though some of these people are, you know, I have nothing in common with them. Some of them make very poor decisions or are dealing with very painful things. So in there probably are moments which some might say are heavy handed. 
but I just think overall it's done really, really thoughtfully. Yeah, that uh, if it's authentic, I am all for it. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, definitely, definitely would recommend. Um, yeah, well, I guess I guess we should jump into the main course though. Here, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, at this point, when when people hear the Matrix, I think you know people think of Bullet Time, they think of Keanu Reeves, they also think about you know, just a franchise that got massive and perhaps went astray. But let's let's go back to the, to the beginnings here. Do you remember the first time that you ever saw it? Oh man, it's so hard to say because I saw it when I was really young, and I remember getting the DVD and watching it so many times over, and like watching with commentary as like a I don't know I was eight years old or something. I didn't know what commentary was, um, so it's hard to say I remember the first time. I just remember loving it for years. And so it also sounds like you two were too young to really be watching this, but you watched it regardless. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm <laughs> I think I'm exaggerating by saying I was eight years old. It just feels like I was eight years old. Yeah. I know that I saw it for the first time when I was, I believe, in either fourth or fifth grade, and I loved everything about it. And I guess being being in our particular generation where we're uh growing up, you know, early on in the nineties forward. Uh, you know, we were obviously exposed to relatively violent media, but, uh, you know, I would not say I was desensitized to what was going on in this movie. I, I remember being very disturbed by, you know, the scene early on where there's a parasite inside of Neo's chest and it's going to burst out. You know, at one point his mouth melts and, and just, you know, all the all the ensuing violence. It was very, very visceral to me in spite of having played, you know, gun games and things like that. Yeah, I think I would have been scarred by that scene if not for the fact that when I was with my cousins and I was like even younger, I saw Alien and Aliens, which I think were <laughs> arguably more scarring and gory. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, those. Uh, okay, so yeah, you, you already had your primer for that. You even had the yeah, same chest bursting experience while I, I had a time. Did. Wow. <laughs> you know, like it was, uh, it was the sort of thing where, where like I had a lot of. Uh, fears regarding things being stabbed into my chest or coming out of my <laughs> chest uh, by that age in the Matrix was just another drop in the bucket. All right. I mean, so, and this is funny because I distinctly remember reading a an academic study recently that people who is, w- reported being big fans of horror and generally violent media have reported be, de- dealing with the pandemic better than others. So really, we were doing ourselves a long-term service by exposing ourselves to those. Oh, wow. I had no idea. <laughs> I, I just think that's how it is. Yeah, I, I believe it. Um, I guess I've been handling it pretty well. I was alone for a while and uh, eventually formed my own social bubble um, that's pretty tight-knit, and we do a lot. So I guess I you can say I survived. Yeah. And I would venture to say that maybe you've given more thought to what your plan would be if, you know, an alien came down through your hallway or if the zombie apocalypse transpired. I mean, we're prepared. Uh, yeah, you know, I... I remember, I remember those thoughts passing through my mind in the beginning of the pandemic, um, and I kind of just decided, eh, if I die in the beginning of it, I die in the beginning of it. It's okay. <laughs> I lived well <laughs> enough. That's that's fair. That's fair. Um, yeah, I guess the other thing I distinctly remember about watching that movie for the first time was when Neo first wakes up or rather is being woken up in the quote-unquote real world there's just there's this scene where he has all these he's all these wires in his body and he just very very you know and all he's he's going into shock and they're all just talking and there's this very dramatic pan where he screams and his voice becomes digitally distorted you go Mm. get the shot down his throat and he wakes up and then he just sees the real horror of everything. It's just so much the stomach. And this was, without exaggeration, a mind-blowing moment for me as a young kid. You don't get that many in your life, and I think it's an overused phrase, but that stuck with me for a long time because it's just like, wow, what if all this isn't real? Yeah, I think that was a huge shock to a ton of people. Um, I know personally I... 
I was enthralled by it. I thought it was such a neat concept. Um, but uh, <laughs> little story. I was I so I definitely couldn't have been eight years old when when I watched the Matrix. Or I guess I could have been eight years old when I watched the Matrix. But I know that I had that sort of realization beforehand because I remember sitting on. <laughs> I remember sitting on the toilet when I was like five or seven or some some young age, too young to be uh, for the Matrix to have even come out yet. Um, and just thinking like, wait, what if what if I'm hallucinating right now and I'm actually like sitting on my friend's lap, <laughs> like I'm peeing on my friend's lap or something? It was it was more like I was. Uh, oh, <laughs> I remember more more clearly now. Um, it, it was more like, you know, the, there's that moment where, uh, you'd, you'd been rushing to the, the bathroom because you really had to go and you're holding it in for so long. And it's such a relief that you made it without, you know, having an accident that it just can't be real. Like, it's just so, so relieving that, that, uh, it just feels too good to be real. And, <laughs> and so, and that was the thought was like, wait, did I actually make it to the toilet in time? Or, you know, am I just crazy and, like, I'm actually this, this like, red-skinned demon with really long hair and all of – everyone else is this weird demon as well. Um, and, and, like, I'm just the crazy one here who's, like, peeing on my best friend or something. or And, like, everything I thought was good is actually annoying to everyone else and they think it's bad, but they, like – feel bad for me so they keep me around like that was the sort of train of thought i had as like a seven-year-old wow you know like peeing on the toilet or whatever um and so i i had that concept in mind i definitely remember i had it in mind before i watched the matrix you were a far more self-reflective kid than i was i was just struggling to keep my pants up i mean that's that's a lot to <laughs> wrap my mind around but wow it was, it was definitely the sort of thing that it was just an imagination that's all it was Okay, interesting. I think, and I think that just just moments like that throughout the movie are such are such a wonderful asset to it because you know you can describe this as a very cerebral film, but it is also a deeply emotional, visceral experience too. And those two don't always meld together well, but in this particular case, the Wachowskis did a masterful job. Yeah, yeah. I mean. When I rewatched it again in preparation for this, I, I was, for the first time, really critically watching it. And I was amazed at how fluid the exposition was, how fluid yeah. the uh, setting and the world building was. Um, because they're just diving through one heavy philosophical or scientific concept to the next. Um, but they keep you so entertained in the process. Yeah, And they, they do that for like what an hour and a half and then the the final payoff of like the huge string of action sequences yeah. yep. um is only like the last what half an hour or something um so it's it's really incredible how how uh yeah well crafted it is well balanced i i favorably compare the matrix to apocalypse now which is to say that it is one of the rare big budget movies in cinematic history that, you know, it, it thrills and it reaches these new cinematic heights. Um, it, it touches you in unexpected ways. Uh, but it's also extremely just like there, there are so many ideas in there, you know, an improbable amount for a mainstream film to be uh, that daring is is very, very rare. Usually movies like that. Uh, they will not get a budget of that size. They won't be super successful or reach a wide audience. Uh, this is just a, a perfect storm of, of great things coalescing. And I think that it really starts, I mean, it is inherently rooted in how good it all looks. And so one thing I want to also say is that I think that this has aged extremely well because they did the right amount of practical effects and did not lean too much into CGI. Like, did you see oh, any yeah. moments in it that like you could kind of say, oh yeah, that's CGI, that's a little dated? I mean, I can, but it's the one moment that I think works really well being CGI. It's the moment where Neo finally awakens to his true power yep um and he 
like breaks the matrix. He he sees that it's all binary. He uh, like dives into the agent's chest. He explodes the agent in light, and then like he's bending the the walls around him. All of that looks dated. All of that looks really unrealistic. But I think it's so perfect because it's the moment where you know that the matrix is just a simulation and it's all fake. So it should look fake. And I almost feel like it was probably fake looking even at that time. That's a really good point. I I actually wasn't thinking of that particular moment, but that is entirely like what, what like that completely propels the aesthetics of it and completely justifies like, Oh, well like all the quote, like obviously it's supposed to be unrealistic, the action that's in it, but it somehow also feels authentic at the same time. All like people's like choices and behavior that are happening in the matrix uh, feels earned that way. Like it's such a brilliant premise and setting for that all to happen that it just really is able to lean into that. Yeah. The moment that I was thinking of as potentially dated was that some of the uh, some of of the uh, robots that do come onto the ship, they are shown very briefly at different times, but you can tell they just animated the like the absolute minimum of that uh, because like they didn't want to have them like on the frames too too long, um, and that that's kind of just being nitpicky. Uh, I mean, there's still it won four Academy Awards. It, uh, it, it, this, this, they were able, it was, it's also a really great example of, of filmmakers taking a very maverick approach where it's like, okay, they got a fraction of the final budget. They spent the bulk of it just shooting the opening sequence. And they said, this is either going to pay off or not, but they're, we're going to have to show this to the studio. And they're either going to, they're either going to basically end our careers because we did not finish the movie or they're going to be so blown away by this. That, that's going to justify realizing our whole vision. And um, it's going to be the latter. Yeah, uh, that's a really fortunate, uh, or rather that's, that's a fortunate roll of the dice, I, sh- I guess I should say. Um, hmm. Yeah, going back to the, real briefly to the, the machines, uh, I actually kind of disagree with you on the on how dated they look. Yeah, they definitely don't look fully realistic, but I feel like their choice of dark color schemes um, and low lighting on them made it a lot. And, and also the fact that, yeah, they're only in frame for a, a brief moment. Um, it's very easy to overlook the the animated uh, features of it. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. So I, I feel like it's when I was rewatching it, that didn't, yeah, it didn't, it didn't, yeah, it wasn't glaring to me that that was not as good as we could make it today. Yeah. And I mean, like, I, I think the, the other thing is that even comparing the matrix to its sequels, it holds up a lot better because they got a lot more money and they're, I think that just like they, they started getting very mismanaged because they said, well, fundamentally we can expand on this story here but we have to deliver and keep upping the ante for the action. And mm-hmm. when you watch just clips, even regardless if you want to watch um, Reloaded or Revolutions all the way through, there are just these long extended sequences which don't look good at all. In particular, mm-hmm. there's one where Neo is fighting a ton of clones of Agent Smith, like 40 plus of them at a, at a, at a time. And I remember watching them when I was in college, it had been the first time I had seen them in probably six or seven years. And I'm like, wow, this looks, this, this doesn't even look, this looks like a video game. This doesn't even look like a movie. But at, when it first came out, it looked amazing. Yeah, yeah. That is the classic example I've seen people referring to every time they, they talk about how terrible the animation and CGI were in the, in the sequels. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there were many other scenes besides that that like, Eh, you didn't need to do this in broad daylight. You didn't need to make <laughs> us see this happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Did you uh so now obviously we've 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 talked about like all the technical aspects, a lot of them. Um do, I I still feel though a huge reason why this movie works though is that it is I think the casting in this is is pitch perfect. Uh it's probably will go down as Keanu Reeves's uh key role i know a lot of people it's kind of a joke that he's not the most you know he's not the most technically gifted actor but the dude can do action 
And when you give him a role where it's much more introspective and it's much more physically oriented, I think he completely nails just being like an everyman. You know, I I think Keanu Reeves gets uh, too bad of a rap for his acting skills. I mean, you have to remember the the guy came from uh, Bill and Ted. He was like a really <laughs> likable comedic actor, yeah, um, and a very genuine human. Right. Um, oh, great! Amazing person. Every later. every count yeah. you hear, I mean, every, yeah, yeah, and uh, and and I think that. Neo was supposed to be this bland, as you say, a bland everyday man who anyone can can kind of just project onto. I felt as if he was just a video game character that was supposed to be practically mute um, and like asking all of the dumbest questions or not dumbest, but the the most naive questions um, that anyone would ask if they were thrust into a really confusing situation. I mean, um I think that's a lot harder than, like, everything you just said is true. I also think it's harder than one might think to do that. There's a very interesting interview yeah. with Donald Gleason where he talks about how one of the most, one of the toughest roles he did was doing Ex Mahina because his character was essentially just an everyman. And so he just started watching a ton of different Tom Hanks films. And he's just, this is so difficult, even if you're just playing, a, like, when you're playing just a basic guy. If you don't have quirks, if you don't have, like, extreme... Uh, qualities to your character just to be very present and to be that person yeah like neo doesn't you can see that keanu reeves does a good job acting because neo doesn't shrink away on the screen he's not forgettable on the screen and maybe that's also uh aided by the the director of photography but Mm -hmm. he's he's always there you're aware of his presence and you can feel what whatever he's feeling Sure. And give the director of photography a ton of credit because uh, I think the two biggest uh, cited inspirations for this film, which make it so visually striking, number one was an animated film, was Akira, which is, you know, this classic anime from the 80s, um, just like spanning. And I think that had a huge impact on what they did for all the background developments for it. But then on the flip side, he was channeling a lot of Michel Gondry, who's a French filmmaker who did uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, but also at the time was doing a ton of really interesting music videos. And so that was the inspiration for doing some of those bullet time shots. And just, Mm. they took that and instead of doing it with a stationary camera, they did it with multiple cameras or moving ones. And I mean, that was parodied ad nauseum or tried to be, people tried to rip that off for 10 years. And it just, it's, it, it looks unbelievably good. Yeah, I mean, practical effects, you look at Mad Max, right? Like, practical yep. effects are, by definition, more realistic because um, they're basically just doing it. Um, you know, if you're taking, uh, if you're just filming with, like, a 100 different cameras at different angles, like, you're going to get every angle. That's just how it's, <laughs> that's, like, just what happens. Um, I'm actually still still curious um, about the inspiration that they drew from Akira, because the things that stand out to me in Akira are the way that light was animated um, more than anything else. But you're, are you, were you saying that it was the cityscape that they they were inspired by with Akira? That one I know less about. That one okay. I just know that um, reading interviews with the director of photography, whose name is escaping me right now, those were the two titles that I kept, or or the two subjects were Akira and then the works of Michel Gondry, and so I would just when I when I think of Akira, I do think of the cityscapes. But like of course, like you could do an entire you could do an entire lecture just on what you just said. Like would you say lighting? Yeah, yeah, the way that hundred percent. Yeah, it's it's really you have to you really have to go back and look at how gorgeous the lighting was was drawn. I mean, like they're not. They're not setting up lights. They're not. Uh, in, they they don't have cameras with long exposure times. But you have these beautiful streaks of lights as these uh, motorcycles are going by, and of course, there's no. Um, like they create this very. The, sorry, the lights look very bright despite the fact that it's a movie which is projected into your eyes by a bunch of pixels that are very similar in brightness. So to get that effect of some pixels looking brighter than others is really hard to do. No question. And obviously different medium, but I mean, 
the the challenges that you have to face to get the to get the frame in it, and like the same like uh, when it when it comes to pre production and visualizing it is going to overlap to a degree. And obviously, there was heavy influence just uh, from from the anime genre by the sheer fact that we got the Animatrix, which is a very interesting addendum to people who enjoy the Matrix. Uh, you know, there are a series of anime shorts done by different uh, studios and different style animators. Uh, some are better than others, but well worth your time to check out. Yeah, I never saw the Animatrix, so <laughs> I can't comment on it. It's it's just an interesting. It's a fun little 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 series of these of shorts. Um, in particular, one that stood out to me was it it it's essentially it it portrays the machine uprising, and it makes the it it makes the machines much more. You, you, you have a harder time sympathizing with the humans because you can just see that the sheer fallibility of their of their ways and just virulent hostility essentially brought about their own end. And the robots, or excuse me, or, and you know the machines were just trying to keep things at an even keel. It's almost like they were trying you feel like they were trying to save the humans from themselves at a certain point. And there's mm. uh, there's some interesting ideas in there, and that's that's the thing where to go full circle. I think the other great casting decision for this movie, of of, of which there were several, Hugo Weaving as Agent Smith. Oh man, what a, what oh, yeah. a remarkable cinematic villain, and really made me uncomfortable at a young age because uh, not just that he was a scary presence, but uh, I'm, I want to I'm going to read verbatim his infamous monologue because it was like. One of the first ones that I heard that really felt scathing and true, which is what a great villain should do. And what he, what he says is, um, let's see, to, to, to get to the, to the essence of it here, every mammal on this planet instinctively develops, develops a natural equilibrium with the surrounding environment, but you humans do not. You move to an area and you multiply and multiply until every natural resource is consumed and the only way you can survive is to spread to another area. There is another organism on this planet that follows the same pattern. Do you know what it is? A virus. Human beings are a disease, a cancer of this planet. You're a plague and we are the cure. I mean, <laughs> wow. I know. I remember hearing that and and being like, "Wow, you are so right. We are so messed up. We are <laughs> such a messed up species." Yeah. Um. But but like the thing is, as I've grown older, and I'm not a biologist, so I can't really comment so much on this. But I, I've been introduced to more and more species, and uh, just by virtue of being in the academic world, I I talk to biologists and. You know, humans aren't the only ones that act like viruses. I can't give you great examples, but there's, um, you know, like we're not the only ones who are capable of war. We're not the only ones capable of malice um, or of uh, becoming so, so populated that we destroy our own environment. Mm -hmm. We we're we're really like it's it, we're just better at doing those things, basically. Um, and, I think that's fair. End, yeah, like, and, and that's and that's the thing that people really don't uh, they miss when it comes to evolution. Evolution's a slow process. It's all about adaptation, and it's all about the environment changing in addition to the species changing. Um, and that and how there's this feedback loop between both environment and species. Um, so the species will will um, let's say it's a predatory species and it overhunts in its own environment. And now there's scarcity. The environment has changed. Um, and now the species either has to adapt to its new environment or perish. Um, or more likely, the adaptation is that they go hungry, a bunch of them die, and you know the, the prey end up repopulating until... And so you end up getting this dynamic cycle of like overhunting and scarcity. Um, so, you know, you see that in the wild all the time. Um, and humans are just, they're just more extreme. That's the way that I, mm -hmm. I tend to view it. Um, so yeah. yeah, we're a virus, but a virus is really just another version of us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, there, there, there honestly is something to that. And I actually remember taking issue with, with, uh, such an extreme statement. 
Uh, I remember reading The Big Friendly Giant when I was in third or fourth grade. And at one point, um, basically, there's like supposed to be this very uh, dark, sobering moment where... uh, the, the the giant just says like well you know you're caught you're you know mankind isn't very safe like they they attack and kill each other and the girl sophie's like well that's well think what about all the dangerous animals in the world he's like well yeah they eat to survive but they don't eat each other and i remember raising my hand like that's not true in this book there are lots of cannibals <laughs> in the animal kingdom so it can yeah. sometimes be very easy to say carte blanche that you know humanity is a net negative but it is also very oversimplistic yeah, yeah. I mean, it's oversimplistic, which, you know, when you're creating a good villain or really just a good lie, you always need to have, what, like at least 20% truth to it, preferably 80% truth. Um, and so that's what I think this this passage does so well, is that it's like 99% true. Um, yeah. And it's only when you get to the real nuances of it that you realize like, oh, actually, it's like, kind of a general truth for most things. Humans just have more opportunity at this point. I think the thing that that uh that stands out to me at the moment is the is uh the last little bit where where he says that the the machines are the cure. Um and what's interesting about that is that machines actually can break that that pattern of behavior. Um because the machines are are so strict about their like you know machines are are crafted they they are designed they are given a particular goal and they are given particular methods for achieving that goal um and so they have very strict uh feedback loops built into themselves so if they see that they're over farming um they can very quickly communicate among all of their their machine brethren um and and correct everyone at the same time they have so much more monitoring capability. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of do see how machines are the cure to this. They are they are the only creatures capable of breaking this cycle um, because they're just so good at communicating with each other and, and being so aware and so strict with particular policies. Um, but then it also brings up the question, cure for what? You know, like, what is it that you want to achieve? What is the good that you want to achieve in the end? What is the goal? Um, so, yeah, they're the cure for keeping the environment from changing too drastically. Like, that's kind of what they're aiming for, I guess. Um, well, and then there's also this really fascinating paradox on both ends of the factions in the matrix because they're the humans and the machines Mm -hmm. and in this case everything that you just said is is accurate and at the same time the whole machine paradigm and perspective on what the cure and you know what volatility and what status quo are all had to be programmed into them it's all from the framework of designers Mm -hmm. of humans yeah so humans are the ones who told the machines the ideal situation is for the environment to be you know, lush and green, but the what that really means is that there's enough resources to survive. That's that's what they're really programming into the machines. Make sure there's enough resources to continue to propagate and and survive for another day. Um, and th- that's like that's just an ideal that was created for the machines, and they try to achieve it by any means necessary. But that doesn't mean the environment won't change. That doesn't mean they can ultimately succeed. And that doesn't mean that it's good. You know, it's not an objective good. Um, Because you have to imagine, you know, I'm not, I don't want to make this a political uh, conversation about climate change. Um, The idea is, is that even if we try to prevent climate change, the odds are that at some point, the sun's going to explode, right? <laughs> you know, like the environment, yeah. the environment is always going to change at some point. Um, and it's going to be age, uh, to change beyond the parameters with which we can uh, survive. So the idea of the good being make sure there's enough resources here and now is only a temporary good because at some point the earth is going to explode and those resources are going to be gone no matter how hard you tried to preserve them. 
I think a key a key descriptor that you use there was objective, and yes. Yes. I think that this movie really plays around with objectivity versus subjectivity because those are those are huge ideas and these are ones that you know if you're going to get philosophical they go back for as long as mankind has existed but just the whole idea of of like the red pill blue pill choosing the truth versus not you know going back to status quo versus like there is no spoon uh there there's so much to unpack with those where do you even begin yeah ah you know i was i was really trying to think about this um i think the way that you have to start is that this movie creates an incredible shift from the world that we live in because this is this is a movie that says there is an objective reality it starts with that assumption and when we're walking around in the real world uh, sorry, that's that's already assuming that there's an objective reality. When we're when we're walking around in the world outside of this movie, we never know that there's an objective reality. Um, I, I think one of the things that stood out to me was that uh, there there's a few moments. There's Morpheus asking the question like, "What is real? How do you define real? Um, yeah. You know, if yep. it's just a bunch of electrical signals firing in your brain, then like." You know, there's that's the matrix is as real as uh, the non matrix within the movie. And I think that he's right. I think he's absolutely right. The that in our world outside of the movie, we can never know that there's an objective reality. We can never access it. We're always actually living in a simulation because no matter what, the way that your brain works, the way that you interact with the world is that the environment gives you some kind of a prompt, right? You, you mm-hmm. touch something and stimulus. now stimulus. Yeah, yeah. there's a stimulus. Sure. Thank you. There's, there's a stimulus. Um, and like you, you, uh, there's some, there's like, I have a cup here that's red. Um, and I, I look at the cup, there's light bouncing off the cup into my eyes. This is, you know, the scientific, th- uh, theory that, that light exists. <laughs> um, and and I experience red, but what is red? Red is this uh, experience just inside of my own brain. My brain is creating an experience out of a bunch of electrical uh, and chemical reactions inside of my eyes. So there's always this question, like you know, when when you're when you're a bunch of college students or high school students being philosophical late at night, like, dude. How do I know that, like, my red is the same as your red? Like, what if my red's your green? Right. And, like, that's a very valid question. Maybe the the rods and cones are switched between those two humans, and so the pattern associated with red in one human is actually the pattern associated with green in the other human. Um, so that's just to show you that like the visual feast before your eyes is really just a simulation your brain creates for you. Um, and so you're, you're never truly experiencing the objective reality. You can guess that it's there, but you can never really experience it. And the matrix is, is this movie that says we know there's an objective reality. And we also know that it's not the same as what your simulation inside of your brain is telling you it is. That's that's one hundred percent, yeah. And you you can imagine that once you start asking these questions and maybe getting some answers that you don't want to hear, that that can really make or break some people. Um, yeah, and I, and I think that's why, um, when people talk about this movie, they they tend to instead of likening it to to Descartes' Cogito Ergo Sum, which is I think therefore I am the whole. Uh, thought experiment of like, what if I could doubt everything that I perceive and actually, you know, I'm, I'm just like a brain in a vat um, or like some demon is just making me think and feel things um, or giving me the stimuli that aren't real. Um, people tend to uh, go instead for Plato's allegory of the cave, um, which is instead this, this uh, it's, it's the precursor to, to Descartes. It's instead the thought that you you started off in, um, in one scenario that uh, like okay so the allegory of the cave is that 
you have a bunch of slaves who are chained to a wall in the bottom of a cave and the only pretty shadows yeah the only thing i get to see are these pretty shadows like basically shadow puppets that are being uh created for them um and so their entire world is a bunch of shadow puppets they don't know what's casting the shadows um and if you unchain that slave and start showing the slave what was the source for the shadows what was casting the shadows um and you take them up outside of the cave and they see the sun it's it's a horribly traumatic experience um you like you can absolutely uh guess that this slave would have all sorts of anxiety and panic attacks and just feel complete nausea over over the discovery of this this truth this actual objective reality um and that's exactly what neo goes through um when he when he wakes up it's a very painful process they even say at one point he says at some point that his eyes hurt and that's because they had never been used before yeah and that's such a, a nod to the allegory of the cave where once you once it's so bright out your eyes are going to hurt it's going to take a long time to adjust and then you create this wonderful dichotomy where I believe that the way that that ends is that once you leave the cave, then real you you see you seek enlightenment, and then there are people that will return to the cave and try to spread that to other people. That that is what yes. that's what the prerogative is. And so essentially, that is what that's the role that Morpheus is doing for Neo. But then on the flip side is you have Cipher, who is this wonderful tragic villain. I mean, one of, of all you know the trail arcs that i've seen easily he has one of the most uh uh relatable ones that you really feel for the guy even if it's despicable what he ends up doing which is you know he tries to mm -hmm. cast a deal to sell out the crew to agent smith so he can get back into the matrix on his own volition so he can basically just play it and get the life that he wants because he cannot handle the truth he cannot mm -hmm. be happy and you know and and that's the thing humans are going to have different reactions I, I say humans as if i'm not a human we're all going to have different reactions to discovering the truth um assuming there is an objective reality and assuming that that objective reality is different from the reality that you live in normally um the the sort of polling that's done the scientific experiments that have been performed um trying to to probe whether or not humans would choose the truth over their comfortable reality um, shows that overwhelmingly people choose the truth they they wouldn't want to go back into the matrix but this is science this isn't uh this this isn't science approaches truth it never discovers it never taps into the real truth um that's an unfortunate truth of science actually hmm. um and so whenever there's data uh, on these sorts of things you can always assume that there's uh some percentage of people who chose to to stick with the truth and not go back into the the matrix um and so cypher you see is the major uh the minority he's not the the rest like the how many people were on the crew there's like Three, there can't four. be more yeah not, there, not there more than less than 10 certainly. less than 10 so like less than one in 10 basically uh decided to return to the matrix um and then you can also guess that this is a pretty rare event that the majority of the the uh pirate ships and zion and all that yeah. um they don't return to the matrix or try to return to the matrix um but there's always going to be at the very least there's always going to be outliers there's going to be someone who thinks differently from everyone else and decides, you know, uh, I, well, actually, he makes the point even that ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. And, and that the Matrix, well, he, he I remember Cypher says at one point that if the Matrix wasn't real, it couldn't kill you. And he's he's right in a way. Firstly, the Matrix is real in in some sense, because real is is always for those of us living outside of the movie, real is always uh, something that has to be perceived um, in some sense, pragmatically. Um, and so he's right about that, at least. Um, the, the Matrix breaks that, of course, because it says there's something else. But he's also real. Uh, he's also right that if it can kill you, it has to be real. 
you know, you are capable of interacting with it in a very um, visceral way, in a way that, that can affect you bodily. Um, so he's not entirely wrong. Um, <laughs> and you can very Eternal much sympathize. Yeah. It's a, yeah, yeah, it's a terminal truth. You can very much sympathize with, with his choice. Um, he's not totally, he's not just a dumb villain with no clearly defined and motivated objective. Well, and, and it brings to mind there, there was, there was a, <laughs> it was this wonderful onion headline. I remember reading years ago, where basically just, a, you know, man who has learned of all, you know, life's troubles still somehow expects to be happy. Uh, <laughs> and so I was just like, you know, I, I mean, I would, I would like to think I would never sell out, you know, my, my compatriots, but I can certainly appreciate what it feels like to be like, wow, all right, this is, this is the real world. And just realizing in front of your eyes, you are not going to live the life that you wanted. You're not going to be able to get the girl. He's not going to be able to be with Trinity, even though he loves her. He's he's not going to be able to live any kind of like a, a happy, comfortable life. They're probably not going to beat the machines. The odds are stacked mm -hmm. against them. So every moment that he's living is in service to this. And he never could have known, you know, the full ramifications of all that. How somebody is bound to, you know, have selfish impulses. Mm hmm. Yeah, I I think it's it's uh it's almost hard to say it's brilliant because it's just like yes, of course someone would have selfish impulses, but it it's brilliant because that's just the brilliance of humans that we have such a plurality of of uh thinking um and that no matter what there's no humans don't f and I, oh yeah. Um so no matter what humans don't uh, all follow the same generic scheme. And that's actually uh, one of the things that made running the Matrix really hard. They bring this up in the first movie, and I, I would rather constrain our conversation to just the first movie um, yeah. because things get really wonky in the, in the later movies. But to even say the in the least. first movie, yeah, to say the least. Even in the first movie, uh, you have, I believe, two main instances that, that give you clues into how the Matrix works. Um, there is the Oracle who, uh, who's able to make these incredible predictions that are, you know, as within the movie, 100% accurate. Um, and there's also, um, there's, uh, Agent Smith's, uh, the, the, the diatribe he has on humans being a virus. I think right before it or after it, he explains how, the first versions of the matrix were a paradise for humans, um, but it didn't work out. Um, and between the two of the, those two conversations, what you come to is this idea of determinism um, and determinism for, for those who aren't as familiar um, is the school of thought. And yeah, I, sh I should say it's a school of thought um, that subscribes to the idea that cause follows effect uh, in 100% predictable ways. So if you drop a ball, gravity, or if you have a ball in your hand and you let go, it's going to fall down due to gravity. And you can do all sorts of physics equations to predict how that ball will fall, how it will bounce off the ground. Um, and that's all fully 100% predictable behavior as long as you know enough about the initial way the ball was dropped you know was it rotating how heavy was it how bouncy was it all these parameters so that's what determinism is um but the thing is that when you don't know enough about the initial conditions you you can't make 100 percent accurate predictions and it's worth noting that it's contrasted with the idea of free will usually when you have the conversation about determinism mm-hmm and I think that this this movie, I, I really like the example when Neo encounters the Oracle and she says, oh, and don't worry about the vase. And he's like, what vase? Mm -hmm. And then he knocks it over and he you know, starts apologizing. He's like, no, I told you, don't worry about it. But it makes yeah. you wonder, would you have knocked over the vase if I hadn't said that? That's really going to get you your uh, mind working. It's, it's going to bake your noodle, as she says. That's right. And, and, that's, and right. that's the thing. She, she knows the answer. If he hadn't knocked if she hadn't said anything about the vase she knows exactly 
what would happen, um, it, whether or not Neo would have knocked it over. She's just messing with him at that point because that's how determinism works. For her mind, she knew that she had a choice whether or not to say uh, anything about the vase um, because she's the deterministic demon who, who knows the path of everything. Um, but she is trying to achieve a certain goal. She's trying to keep the matrix running, um, or at least that's what she was programmed to do. Um, and the thing that's, that's always a wrench in the plan, and that's where, uh, you know, kind of the later movies expound on this more, but you get a sense of it in the, in the first movie. Um, there's always going to be a rejection rate. Some number of people who reject the matrix as a reality and, and leave it. And the machines want to keep the humans in the matrix for reasons that are kind of dumb, uh, the whole battery thing. But regardless of the reason that they want people in the matrix, they want people in the matrix. And so what they need to do is understand humans. And, and that's where determinism is only so good. Um, because they don't have, like, uh, the, the world of the matrix is following determinism. Um, and it's assuming that you know enough about humans to, to keep, uh, to predict their behavior. Um, but no matter what, there's always some margin of error to those predictions. And that manifests in the one, this person who they know will come about because it's just sort of the accumulation of error, or it's just statistically, there's going to be someone who, uh, you know, wakes up, uh, no matter how hard we try to keep that person asleep. Um, and so, and, and like, yeah, that's actually how it works in the real world. When you try to predict the weather, um, you can have a ton of information on the initial conditions, whereas each particle of air going at any time, but there's just so much information, um, that you can't keep track of all of it. Um, you have to constantly update your weather models every day to keep performing accurate predictions. And there's always going to be an accumulation of error that you didn't anticipate, which is why we can't predict when and where a hurricane will arise. We can start to see the precursors of it, and then we have an idea, but we can't predict it months in advance. So the Oracle is kind of just constantly updating her models and trying to, you know, with each version of the matrix and also each day of living within the matrix, um, but she's basically that weather modeler, that weather predictor. Hmm. That's that's an interesting. I hadn't considered the forecast element of that. Uh, that's that's a that's an interesting analogy. Um, wow. Now, I think that 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 using using this analogy it seems pretty apt because if you're going to make the argument that determinism um, is is uh, is if you're going to make the argument that that determinism tends to is what defines people uh, as opposed to free will, uh, you have to account for unpredictable behavior. But if you all make the if you make the argument that it all falls under a quote unquote weather forecast and everybody's choices and beliefs and aptitude uh, all falls within a a range based off of their chemical compound and perhaps their uh, their surroundings, there perhaps is an argument for that. Uh, it can be a very uncomfortable thing to wrap your mind around, and there's really no no way to completely prove it one way or another, but it's an interesting conversation to have. Well, yeah, and that's the magic of movies is that you can create an environment, a world where that is the truth. Like, I'm not making statements on free will uh, versus, you know, determinism in the real world, um, <laughs> the real world, uh, in our world, Um I, I'm just talking about within the movie at this point. In the movie, they have extremely limited free will. And you know this because the Oracle exists. Um, and the Oracle accurately predicts how humans work. Very, very accurately. Um, and you know that there's some sense of free will because it's not a perfect prediction. Um, but it's still really really good evidence within the world of the matrix that there is no free will because you know the if they're able to predict human behavior this well they could probably do better if they had more information 
Well, and that's that's the other thing, because I think that if that were the case, then uh, economists could always accurately predict human behavior ahead of time, which they can't, you know, and, yeah. you know, there, there, there are many there, there are many layers to that one one piece of one uh, one one. Um, article I recommend to listeners is there's a piece in Scientific American, which I believe I actually shared with you some years ago, but the title is Scientists Say Free Will Probably Doesn't Exist, But Urge Don't Stop Believing. There's a, <laughs> there's a lot to uh, unpack with that. And they conjure up the scenario of going back in time, what how you would handle Hitler. And there's a lot of different directions it goes in. Uh, it, it's well worth your time. And it's surely not a topic we're going to uh, real, really uncover tonight, but um, definitely, definitely one that is fascinating to explore through this lens. Um, one thing that I wanted to ask you, and I think that you've, you know, you've done a very good job synthesizing some of these very big overarching ideas um, that they that they that they put uh, out there. Usually, you know, and these have largely been philosophical, and there's been aspects of science. Now, as a guy who is in the field of physics. Is there any particular example of something that you saw in this film, any any concept that really stood out to you as being either really authentic or inauthentic? Hmm. Hmm. Authentic in the sense of science, you mean? Yeah. Just just being being sound. I mean, I think at this Scientifically point, scientifically sound. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people yeah. are probably familiar with the creative liberty that they had to take making the humans uh, being being batteries for this because mm-hmm. they had to make that compromise to make it readily understood to a wide audience uh, that originally when it was written, the humans were actually serving to be CPU, but the average person does not know what that entails, why, you know, how, how a computer yeah. works. So Within, what, that would be meaningless. In, in the 90s, I think it was a fair choice to to change it from CPU to battery because people were barely owning personal computers at that point. And, you know, uh, (laughs) if you were, if you were lucky enough to have what, like 512 megabytes of Ram, that was huge. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, I would say that actually the determinism aspect of it is the most authentic um, the way that they say that there's multiple versions of the matrix because they are creating these predictive models um, to try to keep the matrix running for some amount of time is the most authentically scientific aspect of that movie, for sure. Because that is how science works in the real world, in, in our world. It seems very, very contrary to how you usually see that idea in film. Usually when you see... when you see it's portrayed as the butterfly effect, which is kind of shown as like the most opposite Mm -hmm. extreme. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the butterfly effect. There's some very small parameters that are missing. There's some butterfly flapping its wings somewhere uh, in the form of a human uh, making a a very small choice that no one saw coming. Um, And then that ripples out Um, that, that it's very much linked, I would say. Um, so I, I do think that's the most scientifically authentic. Um, inauthentic, I think the choice of battery <laughs> is definitely uh, the most inauthentic because rational machines would definitely know that um, no matter how efficient they make a, a human into a battery, the human still is going to be consuming more energy than it's outputting. That's just impossible to overcome. Um, you would, if you wanted to use batteries, you would just use batteries. You wouldn't have the humans anymore. Um, and so that's why I think the the thought of the, the CPU made more sense. Um, but even that, there's still some inauthenticity to it because it's so speculative. Um, it's a fantastic thing to think about. And I think it's the great th- uh, gift that science fiction can provide for us that it brings up these scenarios that we can think about and try to come up with scientific explanations for and justifications for, and that does lead to real scientific and technological progress. Um, But it's not guaranteed uh, uh, or an authentic scientific direction. Yeah, you're right, because definitely across the sci-fi genre, there's a ton of speculation that goes on with these different scenarios, Um, so much that you can put into the Matrix 
and you have alluded to this several times, you know, the machines organizing um, and creating these different worlds for the humans uh, throughout these different iterations of the matrix. So my question would be, do you see any value in speculating um, how the machines do that? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I think the, the, the direction that the matrix uh, suggests is, of course, very extreme. Um, it's where we've created these, these robots, these artificial intelligences um, that can, that can uh, propagate on their own. Um, and they eventually take over. But I think that a lot of the, the futurists and the, the AI scientists who are creating the machines that could turn into, uh, the, sorry, the, the computers and the machines today that could turn into the machines of tomorrow that take over the human race, what they're also considering is the possibility of machine-human interfacing so that there's actually a merger between humans and machine. Um, and the, the thing that the Matrix really uh, makes us consider is how is it that you would create a simulation for humans? Um, because that's the sort of technology that you would need uh, in order to to interface a human brain with a machine. Uh, you have to be able to decode the information that a human brain works with um, and be able to both read the output of, hu of a human brain and also provide input that a human brain can read. And at the moment, we use these binary computers, um, and we know for sure that that's not how our brains work. Um, but somehow the machines in this movie have figured out that interfacing um, and have gone even further to uh, create an efficient simulation that all humans buy into. Um, and there's there's a lot of suggestions within the movie saying that the humans are actually the ones creating the simulation. Interesting. Um, yeah. Like if you wanted the, especially considering that it was supposed to be CPU instead of batteries to begin with, um, the idea is that the matrix has to be as efficient as possible um, in order for the humans to buy into it and then also have enough brain processing power left over for the machines to use for their own purposes. So uh, to kind of guide us through this, I would ask you like when you're dreaming how convinced are you that you're, you know, uh, picking up a cup, let's say? Hmm. So in this particular scenario, I would probably be completely convinced because it would not occur to me to look for spatial anomalies. It would probably look and feel real. Yeah. And it looks and feels real because your brain is creating the, the look and feel and also telling you that it's real. Um, right. So... The minimal, or at least what I'm gleaning from this, is that the, the most efficient matrix is just having a bunch of people share a single dream. That would be a human, instead of having like a, a cup that two humans look at and then they have to perceive that cup, so that would be the machines creating the input of a cup that they give to multiple humans, um, it would instead be just tell the human that there is a cup and then have the human imagine what the cup is like for themselves, just like it is in a dream. Huh. And then you have the human transfer that idea, like, oh, I see a cup. What do you see? And they transfer that idea to another human who then invents their own simulation and their own version of what the cup is. Um, and that would leave a lot of brain processing power left over um, for the machines to use. Um, and it's that sort of like interfacing that needs to be figured out and makes, you know, it gives you some inspirations for how you might do it. That's such an interesting idea uh, of like shared ideas and language and memes even. Although I am disappointed you said cup and you could have just used spoon and it would have been perfect for the matrix analogy. But you know. <laughs> you're right. You're right. I'm sorry because I have the there's the whole spoon bending scene. Oh, that's all right. I mean, to err is human, as we've learned. Well, yeah, because like it is, 
you know, it connects so well to the spoon. Because that's the statement, like, there is no spoon. It's not the spoon bending. It's only you bending. And, like, that's right, because you're the only one there. Ah. So when you bend the spoon, you are the one bending the spoon. Like, in order to bend the spoon, you were bending your own image of the spoon. And your image of the spoon is just a part of you. So you are bending yourself. Yeah. That's fascinating. The The idea that, that we can use this as, as a launching point and get into so many big ideas uh, so quickly is, is such a testament to what a, what a rich, dense, and interesting film uh, The Matrix is. Well, Thomas, this was fascinating. I, uh, I, I appreciate being able to reminisce <laughs> about, uh, about this, this film and uh, the, somebody who appreciates it like I do and given me uh, quite a bit to, to chew on with some of these big ideas. So thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Likewise. All right, that should wrap up our episode on The Matrix. Um, if you want to hear more of our content, we are on Facebook and Twitter. You can read our written works on medium.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>